Well, this morning, uh, we come to the final part of this three-part series. My apologies if you're kind of joining us right at the end, as it were, of the journey. But we've been considering the subject, to put it more prosaically, of progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. And it's been entitled, Changed from Glory into Glory, that which should be the transformative effect in us of God's life, in us, moving us towards holiness. And we've been considering some of the obstacles, some of the things that get in the way of that, things like false guilt uh, or fear. And we termed something internalized injustice, which sounds a bit wordy, doesn't it? But it means that we just sort of lock in hurts and anger and unresolved issues from the past that still stop us maturing in holiness and becoming the people that our Lord intends us to be. We saw last time that actually, we drew there upon 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we didn't read it this morning, but it's kind of been our, our guiding text, that we are looking at an image in a mirror reflected back to us. And it's actually Christ, Christ that is mirrored back to us. And we are to become more and more like him. That's the essence, actually, of holiness. We'd become more and more like him. So if you like the image, looking back at us, uh, we should see actually not ourselves, if you will, but more of Christ. See the attitudes and the kind of uh, ways of doing things and, and living. That it, That is him. Of course, we can't copy his divinity, but we certainly can and should copy his humanity. And that, as he lived here as a servant, our mediator here on earth, That's what's held out to us. And we saw that we must pray and pray knowing that God will take us very seriously if we are praying that he might search us and try us, that he might investigate deeper within us and make us more aware of what we need to change, what we need to repent of. That's what David prayed. And when his own sin found him out, then he was all the more ready to pray God, engage with me. I want to be cleansed. I want to be thoroughly purged. Well, we were considering that as we finished last Lord's Day. So picking up the theme today, and this is actually an address that I gave at a conference at the end of February earlier this year. But the subheading now is this, do not attempt this on your own. That's an inquiry into the depth of your soul and mind. Because it's not a cheerless and depressing exercise. So here is some counsel. Do not enter dark rooms on your own. Do not enter the dark rooms of our souls on our own. Neither, when we pray, are we inviting a totally unsympathetic investigator to go and rummage around in the sad and wretched secrets of our hearts and deliver a cold and heartless audit on us. We're asking the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're asking to know these things and praying to know all of it in his name. We're relying upon him. And we know that however humbling the discoveries, however difficult the conclusions that we are compelled to reach, however foolish we're made to appear, however disobedient we might transpire to be. The Lord Jesus has accounted for it all at the cross. 
In other words, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we approach this work of sanctification with hope. The Lord is on our side. He is a creative partner, a friend who will illuminate and show the places where deeper repentance is needed. The context of all of it is the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross. His wounds cleanse and promise forgiveness. They promise a new start for people suffering the most basic of evils found still operative in the soul, hiding perhaps behind our fears or ruining and hampering our responses to the truth. We are not alone looking into the abyss of our soul with fear and trepidation, fearing that we're getting in too deep where we'll not be able to cope with the discoveries that alone be in position to do anything about them. Christ is a companion, assuring us of his interest in us and his deep love for us. He is not called the physician of souls for nothing. I mentioned a previous sermon that we rely on his forgiveness for everything. We'll never be able to do anything perfectly. And we saw that we should not, that should not supply us with a reason not to undertake anything. Christ provides us with all the reasons we need for imperfect people to try to attempt to do a perfect work imperfectly. There is richness and power in his forgiveness. There is a hope and a future in that forgiveness. There is reassurance. So we know whatever we find in the secret places, the Lord already knew that it was there and already has the remedy to deal with the guilt and then to restore the soul. There is no fooling him. He knows all about people. Think of this. He knew about his enemies here on earth, didn't he? See what scripture says in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25 about our Lord. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Or here are some true words spoken of those who were clearly his enemies, although think about it for a while that they were his friends. I'm turning here to John chapter 8, verse 37. Remember, he knew all men. He knew what was in man. He was not fooled by people and could read their hearts well. John 8, verse 37. I know, he said to the Jews, that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. They were quite surprised to hear that they were trying to kill him. But he knew what was in their hearts. He knew what their intentions were. So, you see, he knew all about man. He knew about man's sin. He knew about his enemies. What about then his friends? Does he not know the hearts of his own brethren, the people who are called by his name just as well? Does he not understand our deepest needs and our woes? Can he not read us better than we can read ourselves? After all, he could interpret that murder that lay dormant as yet unvocalized in the hearts of those who hated him that occasion in Jerusalem. Can he not unlock the heart that actually has love for him, that it could express that love more clearly 
and more adequately. See them. Our sanctification reaching to the very deepest recesses of our hearts, troubling the underlying obstacles of false guilt, fear, unrealized anger, is in his careful, patient, and loving hands. For he's not a careless worker. He does not put you through unnecessary treatment, as some unscrupulous dentists and cosmetic surgeons do. John 15, verses 1 to 2, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You see, we're in very safe and very capable hands. As the branches connected to our saviour, the true vine, we have a heavenly father who does not work haphazardly and randomly, lopping off a bit here and a bit there, or hacking away at us unintelligently. He works to a plan that we might bear fruit like his son, showing family likeness to him. The process is not impersonal. It's not like a hospital appointment where we meet someone we've never met before, who begins to ask personal questions of us or dives straight into some invasive examination that is deeply personal and maybe embarrassing. His name is Love. He has personally accounted for our sin at the cross. His public death is that we should not bear public exposure ourselves and a process of shaming, but that he might come to us with healing and help, transforming our inner world and the life to bring us further forward in the process of being a replica of him. Too often the Christ that we're relying upon is not a true Christ. He is one who is only angry, belittling, fault-finding and impossible to please. Yet we read that there are things that we can be and do that are pleasing to him. He does take pleasure in his people, not because they are perfect, but because they are his people, set apart and in the process of being made more and more like him. So in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul prays, amongst other things, for the following. He says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see, Paul is not praying for something that the Lord has no intention of allowing us to be and to do. It says that we can be fully pleasing him without being perfect. Us engaged fully in the process of sanctification is what he's looking for. He's looking for us to have faith in who he is, what he can do, how much he loves, how total a victory the cross was. This is to be sanctified in hope. This is to pray believing that we will receive what we ask for. This is God being glorified in us by the things that he is making us into. My next heading, no deceit was in his mouth. No deceit was in his mouth. The Lord is our faithful friend and helper in sanctification. We should also make him the model for our sanctification. He is the image the spirit would make us into. 
is not simply a matter of not doing particular things. Indeed, the Bible would make us wonder whether we are truly a child of God if such gross sins as covetousness, idolatry, drunkenness, blasphemy are evident in our lives. We see something more than the avoidance of sin in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see great virtues being lived out. We see the glory of perfect character, rounded, tested, approved. One of the things we read it in our first reading that most characterized him, that there was no deceit to be found in his mouth. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. We know that, true, we have to be careful at times with our choice of words, the things that we've been told by others in confidence. In fact, we should always be careful in giving an undertaking about hearing something in confidence that we're not being bound to something that is going to be a snare. That is the counsel of perfection. Life is messy in a fallen world. We sometimes have to be open to the charge that we've been deceitful because we were custodians of other people's secrets. But there can be more obvious cases of deceit where we are far away from the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we find him described in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 9. He's straightforward and clear in what he is saying. He's making no effort to deceive people, tell half-truths, hide things away from people that they might not want to hear, or indeed that they need to hear. Remember, we looked earlier, last week in fact, at the example of the Apostle Paul in Antioch and how he was not controlled by fear, as Peter was on that occasion. Peter was afraid and did something that was a denial of the gospel and of that key doctrine, justification by faith. Paul was imitating the Lord Jesus Christ by being straightforward. Peter was not. Even the Lord's enemies conceded that our Lord was not swayed by people into giving a false judgment or trimming the truth to suit his hearers' preferences. So in Mark chapter 10, and near the end of our Lord's life when he's in Jerusalem, just reading uh, verses 13 to 14, because we read that then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch him in his words. When they'd come to him, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, there was their question. These men were insincere to the core, and their question, as we see from Mark's preface, was so that they could catch him in something that he said. They get more than they bargained for, of course, on that famous occasion. Yet they speak the truth even deceitfully when they say that the Lord does not care about anyone, their opinions, their reactions, their reputations. In other words, the Lord was the very opposite to what they were. This is how they ought to have behaved as teachers and leaders. Instead, they did everything they could to maintain their privileges and keep their reputations among the people running high. Our Lord knew their ways, Matthew 23, verses 5 to 7. He says, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. 
They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called Rabbi, Rabbi. It's interesting that Rabbi, Rabbi, is how Judas Iscariot greeted the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he identified to the temple guard, the one that was to be arrested. Mark 14, verse 45, as soon as he had come, Judas immediately went up to the Lord and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Judas had not been paying attention when our Lord showed how totally unimpressed he was with such greetings. Those greetings might have flattered and satisfied proud Pharisees, confirming to them their place of honour, the reputation among the people. The Lord Jesus had no place for any of that. He saw through the Pharisees and he saw through Judas too. He was not susceptible to flattery and did not follow the Pharisees, who were very susceptible to it. For if you are more conscious of maintaining your position and status than having personal integrity, you'll be tempted to stay silent when you should speak and to allow injustice to be carried out when you should have done something. We thought about that a little the other week. The saying is good, that all it needs for evil to flourish is for good men to stay silent. The Lord Jesus was not cut from that cloth. There was no deceit to be found in his mouth. But is there deceit in ours? Have we a good reputation with outsiders that we care about no one's reputation? Are we known for not regarding the person of men? Do we speak and teach when we have opportunity the way of God in truth? It's a poor testimony if we're known for being shifty, dishonest and not straightforward. In fact, it's an act of cowardice and very lamentable at that. Yet we see these kinds of things in churches and you can see it in church movements, which have more concern about their profile and their status than we're dealing with error and falsehood in their midst. You know anything about the new Calvinist movement in the United States? Well, over the years, I've been something of a a critic of it. But I think it is still a stain on many of them in the United States that they did nothing, with some notable exceptions like John MacArthur, to check the behaviour and influence of their erstwhile resident enfant terrible, if you've heard of him, Mark Driscoll. His attitude, teaching and treatment of other people should have set alarm bells ringing everywhere. Instead... He's given platforms, invited to be headline speaker at numerous conferences. To the new Calvinist powers that be, it seemed to be more important to have someone who impressed people, especially young men, and could attract large numbers than to have truth and sound behaviour. All the time, when something is being built for the Lord, it can degenerate into a loss of integrity and the essentials of basic Christian character and in the process end up becoming tragic and self-defeating. We have to look to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and see him teaching the way of God in truth, even if it's a bit unpopular. Too often again, it is the good old fear of man, which we've mentioned before, that lies behind the cowardice. If we make our Lord Jesus Christ the gold standard of what we should be and what we should be aiming at, we may have to admit that we still have a long, long way to go. But there he is, setting the pace for us, showing us what our relationships with others should be like. And it's stirring, isn't it? It's a fine example that inspires us 
with the courage and fearlessness that is visible in him. If we are held by the fear of man, we would do well to study him these moments of his ministry and then go and do likewise. Well, my next heading, holiness and love. Holiness and love. Well, these aren't oppositional requirements. Holiness without love is not true holiness. Love without holiness is not true love. Love is, in fact, the first fruit of the Spirit to be listed in Galatians chapter 5. The Holy Spirit produces nothing against his name or nature. If he produces love in us, then it will be holy love. Now, a Saviour's holy love is most extraordinary. If love essentially means we desire the welfare, well-being of another above our own well-being, then his love was beyond anything ever seen before. Love comes easiest to us when we find something lovable in the person we are considering. We may feel strongly bound to someone, be very happy when they are happy and very sad when they are sad, where there is the extra chemistry of love between a man and a woman. And there you have love with all the feelings that are right and proper to it. Our Lord's love stands out in that he desires the good of people who really only deserve wrath because of their rebellion and generally obnoxious ways and thoughts. He does not follow through with what justice would require if justice was alone to decide our fate. He loves for nothing lovable in us, nothing that deserves strong feelings to be engaged toward us other than anger. He loves us in spite of what we are. All that love is very different, very set apart, very holy. I read in Romans chapter 5, let me read again verses 6 to 8. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. He did what was his greatest act of love, dying on the cross, when there was nothing in us to draw forth, naturally speaking, his love to us. We were not wholly like him. We were not able to think properly about him or about ourselves. His death would have to supply all the power for that to happen. We obviously are not required to die in the way he did for others. That was uniquely his work to have to do. But the example of loving people who are not especially lovable remains very much part of what it means to look to Christ to be sanctified. That is what we are to be like as well. We are to go outside of ourselves, beyond those we would usually mix with, and be ready to show love, care and understanding beyond those in that immediate circle. Well, this is where the challenge becomes particularly acute when it comes to loving lost sinners, whose opposition seems to get worse and worse with each passing day. They are, in our own nation, increasingly opposed to the truth, and many want to use every opportunity they can to intimidate, ridicule, and silence believers. Those of the activist wing are busy trying to corrupt children and young people, sowing doubts in their minds, confusing them about who they are. But we're not alone. 
in recognising the worrying tendency to get people banned, denied access to speaking engagements and debate. Secular writers see this happening too and deplore the tactics that are used and the self-righteousness that drives these neo-Pharisees to make everyone conform with them. Well, we have to love these people too. We have to seek to reach them still with the word of truth. I remember what happened when our Lord approached Jerusalem, knowing what the people would do to him. Luke chapter 13, verses 41 to 42. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that made for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He went out to spell the nature of the judgment that would befall the city. Now it would be destroyed one day. But it's the weeping I want to stay with here. This city that he understood, for he knew what was in man, very clearly knew would reject him and have him crucified, was the object of his tender affection and heartfelt tears. That was love. That was holy love. Such love for those who hated him. Such love for those whose end he knew drew near. They had not recognized on this their day, when scripture was being fulfilled before their very eyes, that the very person who would bring peace between them and God was right before them. Yet it was hidden from them. And instead of hailing him as their king, they were going to subject him to unimaginably humiliating and cruel treatment. He would be the subject of the basest handling and the most sordid of evil human scheming. It was their hour, the hour of darkness. Yet he wept for them, for these people who would do these things to him. Well, this is taking us to somewhere distinctly uncomfortable, but distinctly noble. This is love for your enemies and praying for those who spitefully use you. This is blessing those who are cursing you and doing good to those who hate you. Whatever we make of election and the love of God for the elect, there is something incredible here and full of instruction to us. See what we're required to be and how we're meant to be, to live as we hold up the Lord Jesus before us. His life example is the key to something very fundamental and so distinctly Christian. Does Islam have this kind of holy love in its DNA? Arguably only among those who have turned their backs on sizable portions of the Quran and the Hadith, the teachings and sayings attributed to Muhammad. We're not impressed with the outcomes for people where there is Hindu or Buddhist fundamentalism. If we are, in their eyes, their enemies, they're not to be found weeping for us and our lost state in their eyes. I don't think they're agonizing over our lost state. They're not as far as I'm aware. Earnest, heartfelt prayer for our deliverance from darkness. They do not resolve to win us over with love and good works. More likely, they're planning punitive legislation, penalizing conversion to the Christian faith, or using blasphemy laws to get Christians into trouble and indulging in non-state sanctioned but tacitly state-approved violence. Some have their own homegrown violence to unleash on us and any others that differ from them. 
They do these things because their ethics are not inspired from heaven and have not been validated by the life and example of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very Son of God himself. We have that heritage from the Lord. Psalm 147, verses 19 to 20. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and judgments to Israel. He is not dealt thus with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Come to that, the atheists hardly do a better job trying to hound academics out of universities because of their adherence to creationism, for example. The humanists, by and large, give little thought to ethics other than borrowing from Christianity without acknowledging the debt. Their energies are more focused on diminishing the place of the Christian faith in schools or seeking to legislate against Christian ethics in the public square. And I say this, too often they come across as arrogant, bitter, angry, and morally unattractive people. If they have some place in their thinking for loving their enemies, there is precious little evidence of it. No, this is our possession. The masterclass being given by our Lord Jesus. We are his disciples, following where our master leads. It's a hard part of our calling, but so important that we engage with it in this era of banning gay conversion therapy, harassing street preachers, investigating people who deny or question transgenderism, and in this turbocharged cancel culture. We have to love these people in an appropriate and measured way. That needs holy love. This can mean so-called tough love. We may be required sometimes to give up trying to speak to some of them. There are some strong things heard from the lips of he who gives us the worked example of such sanctified love. He does not lapse into sentimentalism or refuse to look facts full in the face. No, like our Lord, we may have to carefully and in the measured way make some provisional judgments about the kind of people we're dealing with. Luke 10, verses 10 to 12, but whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you. Go out into its streets and say, the very dust which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. That's holy love. That's loving people enough to tell them they're provoking God to his face and risk his wrath being visited upon them. Or hear these strong words of our Saviour, Matthew 7, verse 6. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. So we need discernment, discerning love. There are times to turn away from people. Paul prayed for the Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, that your love may abound still more and more, in knowledge and all discernment. How to love those who made themselves their enemies will require much prayer, much reflection, much honesty, much soul-searching. But let those tears flow for them. Let us get near enough to our Saviour in his character and outlook that we will weep for our Jerusalems. 
This kind of love expressed is part of our sanctification. It's part of what it means to be changed from glory to glory. We can see that to be freed from inner anger, fear is an important component in reaching that place. We cannot love this kind of love when anger and fear are claiming too much of our inner life. So too is the more positive work of learning to resemble our saviour. We grow the better when those other things we party company with. So we come to the finish. These things that I've spoken about have actually been with me personally a while. I've been considering, back to those strange times of lockdown, my own lack of progress and looked to the Lord that I might grow. Things have to be admitted. Old habits have to die even though they die hard. Fresh thinking and with it, fresh feeling, come only slowly and not without a struggle. Sometimes it means parting company in our thinking with some noted authorities. Nothing should get in the way of the Lord's work in our soul to make us more holy. Progressive sanctification is a lifetime's work, getting ready as we'll sing in a moment till in heaven we take our place. It requires soul-searching and repentance, but not with a note of despair and hopelessness. We do it all as we've been thinking, with the help of a friend who knows what he's doing with us and can guide us through the process expertly. He gives us the Bible, the Holy Spirit, solid books, preachers, and each other. Maybe some of us have been on pilgrimage a while, Yet we have, as I feel about myself, feeling that we've barely begun to scratch the surface. And we do need to be spiritually and the best we can possibly be. The challenges of the day require it. The unbelieving world, though it does not know it, needs us at our best. Our churches need us to be this. So to our families and our employers, our neighbours and our friends. So as I finish in the words of First Thessalonians chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.